Ray, are y'all going to use this mic later? Okay. Can I scoot it over? Is that okay? Well, again, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, my family, they're making their way towards Austin. We've got one more wonderfully exhausting family Christmas to do there, so they are not here with me today. Um, but Kyle and Megan and the kids are all off, and it was so fun for them to send me pictures of, um, Let's see, Jude and both Jude and Ella were both dressed up, ready for the Disney experience. And specifically, they want to go visit the Star Wars exhibit. I don't know if you've seen that, but lots of cool stuff. And Jude's outfit of Kylo Ren was spot on. And Ella was a Jedi, and it's great. Like, they're so cute. The thing about the Star Wars, you know, saga in all its different universes, as um, you may not be interested in sci-fi at all. This may be boring, but I'm going to get past it. Um, but... The thing that's interesting about it is it it taps into something that everybody experiences and that Paul talks about here in Romans 7. And it's the reality that everybody's kind of conflicted. Everybody. Whether it's Kylo Ren or Luke Skywalker or Darth Vader or Yoda, mostly not Yoda, especially baby Yoda, but most other characters are, they experience this conflict between where they are and then something pulling in the other direction. So for the dark side, there's like good things that come out and they, they, their masters teach them to really kill that part of the goodness that's in them. And those who are on the, the light um, sort of experience pulls towards this other way. And it's this inner dialogue and this inner conflict. And when people watch that, very few people go, oh, I have no idea what that's like to have internal conflict. Everybody knows what it's like to have internal conflict. Uh, the writer of Romans here, Paul, who writes most of the New Testament who's a scholar in every way, he's very intelligent, godly man as far as uh, the Jewish people would have been concerned. Like, he did everything right, and he describes an inner conflict here that goes to the core of who he is, and and he battles it. And he talks about what he's able to battle it with. He talks about the experience of both spiritual struggle and spiritual triumph. Deep spiritual struggle. You've probably had those. Dark nights of the soul, or whatever it is. Deep spiritual struggles. But the beauty of what God offers us in the Gospels is um, that there's such a thing as spiritual triumph that's not spiritual platitudes, and it's not a happy, clappy version of Christianity. It's not the kind of form of denial. It actually offers real, powerful, accessible, knowable spiritual triumph. Through the power of God's grace and what He offers us in Jesus Christ, this text gives us keys into that. Okay? Two, two different writers as they talked about this text because that I want to read to you because this text is a classical spiritual uh, Christian text. It's the one we often go to when we experience deep spiritual struggle or, or other kinds of struggles and we wonder if there's a way out, if there's a way to spiritual triumph. Sinclair Ferguson said this, Preaching over this text is like attempting to ascent Mount Everest, uh, the Mount Everest of all scriptures. Here we come to quite a challenging climb And this, as it were, is a text that gives us a base camp of sorts. The best of Christian minds wrestle with the profound things Paul says here, wondering if Paul is speaking here of the life of a believer or not, someone who loves the Lord or does not. And in reality, what we find is that Paul is talking exactly about himself. Tim Keller put put it this way. He said, This text is a story about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in a lot of ways. Because Paul talks about this experience 
of what he believes, but then he also talks about how he actually does things that are completely contrary to what he says he actually believes to be best. There's an internal conflict. Can you identify with that? You know, does God understand that? What does God offer us in Christ to be able to make our ways through it? I think this is a particularly important thing to consider as we enter 2020. You know, we're going into 2020 in just a few days. You've had all of, of uh, the last year to sort of figure out how to get your life in order and get everything perfect. You probably don't even have any New Year's resolutions for next year, right? No, we all do. We're all in process. Um, I was reading this article that was published on Christmas Eve uh, by USA Today. It talked about what people predicted 2020 would be like. For those of you who are old enough to like remember, oh, 2020 is going to come one day. I can't believe it. You remember that experience? Well, it's, it's here. People said this, life expectancy will be over 100. Nope. 72.6. Books will be dead. Wrong. Um, something like, uh, what was the number? $26 billion was spent in 2019 on publishing books. The world's population will reach 8 billion, close, at 7.7. Retirement will be on the average age 70, typically at 65 right now. Cars will be able to go months without refueling and will most likely fly. Well, this is my favorite though. Anti-gravity belts will revolutionize our military and travel. Uh, you know, sometimes we go too far into fantasy. The, you know, the problem with predictions is this. You're predicting what's going to happen based on your experience and based on what you think is possible. When you are dealing with the things of God, you have to recalibrate what you're going to predict to happen. It has to be completely calibrated on who God says He is, what He's done, and what He promises He'll do through you. And it leads us to places that we might not otherwise be able to go. Paul here talks about two predictions that you no doubt have experienced at least one of them, but he promises you'll experience the other if you will follow in this theme that Paul discusses here. I'm going to suggest it be your memory verse for the year as we get to it. But these two ideas of spiritual triumph and spiritual struggle. Everybody understands spiritual struggle. Is it possible to have spiritual triumph? You know, would you say you're a spiritual person? A 2017 Pew Research study said that something like 27% of all people say they're a spiritual person, but they identify as non-religious. You know, Paul was very religious, and yet before he understood this message, spiritually dead. It is not enough to simply be able to follow the rules and do all the right things and know all the right answers. That, as Presbyterian as we are, and as much as we value that, it's not enough. There's something more, and Paul reveals it to us here. Uh, chapter 7, ver oh, let me go ahead and read this to you. I always forget how y'all do this. So I usually read the scripture beforehand in my other church. So let me read this text and pray for us, and then I'll continue in these two main points. Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 21. So I find this law at work within me. Although I want to do good, evil is right there. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we do give you thanks for these incredible promises that you offer to us in Jesus. And ask that even now as we reflect on these things, that you would encourage us and strengthen us and remind us of what it is you're doing 
through our Savior here even today. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so to these ideas of spiritual struggle and spiritual triumph, let me start with spiritual struggle. Most people acknowledge there's some kind of reality to the spiritual, right? You're more than simply the sum of your physical presence. There's something more to you, or what we call metaphysical, than simply your body. Muhammad answers that question in different ways. Buddha answers that question in different ways. Um, you know, every place you go, whether you Google it or whatever, if you try to look at the idea of what does it really mean to be human, it includes this concept of something beyond your physical body. And that thing that struggles, that spiritual struggle, we're all deeply familiar with. Listen to how Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 7, verse 14. Paul writes these words. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. You know, Paul is sort of describing this like angel on one shoulder and devil on the other kind of experience that are influencing, influencing him and speaking into his mind. But really what the scriptures are telling us is it's not an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other. It's the condition of our heart. That our hearts are such that they have this thing in them called sin that actually creates an internal conflict that we seek to resolve in all sorts of ways, but there's only one way that can actually resolve it. For Paul, the problem isn't the Word of God. He says he knows the Word. He says the law's not bad, and we agree, right? It's wrong to steal. If you steal from everybody you know, you're not going to have very many friends. If you kill everybody you know, you're going to have even fewer friends, right? We agree the law is good. And yet, Paul acknowledges that he struggles to follow that same law. In verse 16, he says, What I want to do, I can't do. And what I want to do is what the law is. And so I agree that the law is good. Paul is saying, I know that being deceitful is not good. Right? I know being deceitful is not good. And yet I twist the truth. I know that loving others as God has loved me is the second greatest commandment that it leads to life. And yet it's so easy for me to be impatient with someone when they get in the way of one little element of my schedule. I know that being gracious is good. God is gracious to us. And yet why is it so difficult for us to be gracious to people? Not to people we think would deserve it. That's easy. What does it mean to be gracious to people we think don't deserve it? Where on earth could we get the power to smile at someone as they cut us off on the road and it not mean to be condescending? God gives us grace and expects us to reflect that grace. In other words, Paul's saying, I agree with God's Spirit and His Word in one sense, but my actions are really communicating what I believe And the actions are opposed to who God is. Paul also talks about how he, in and of himself, can't remedy the situation. Verse 18, he says, For I have a desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. I.e., New Year's resolutions. I find that one or two of those are the same for me every single year. Verse 19, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do, that's what I keep on doing. That goes back to that internal conflict I'm talking about. God calls us to be humble. We struggle with that. God calls us to be gracious. We struggle with that. God calls us to be faithful. And not just in front of everybody else, but faithful in every area, and yet we struggle to do that. What is that all about? Well, it goes back to the concept of sin. And it's present with you when you're born. If you don't think so, just go to a playground. Watch children play. Watch the moment one of them has something the others wish they had. What usually doesn't happen, it happens sometimes, I guess, but most kids don't say, you know what, I love this so much that I want you to have it so you can love it so much. 
Usually it's like, this is mine, it's only for me, please stay away. Right? Even from our earliest days, we struggle to reflect the kind of love that God has given to us. And what do you do with that? What do you do with the reality of that internal conflict that Paul talks about here that um, we see in, you know, embodied in movies, whether it's Star Wars or whatever, we see it in our own lives, this conflict between what we know God's calling us to do and what we actually do. Or, if you want to put it even more, you know, more simply, doing what's right and doing what's wrong. Like, what is that conflict all about? How do you respond to it? Usually people have one of two responses. Submission or rebellion. Submission is to simply yield to the struggle and say it's too tough or too difficult to resist. And so I'm just going to do it. It just feels like that's the easiest way for me to move forward. Rebellion, if, if, as opposed to submission, is this idea that I'm actually going to counter this thing in me that's drawing me this direction and go a different way. Paul tries to do that, and how does he do? He fails. Everything he tries to make concrete in his life as far as following God and living after his ways seems to result in the same thing, submission to those things. So Paul wants to move in a different direction and he struggles to do it because of the reality of sin in his heart. Paul writes in verse 21, I find this law to be at work within me that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin and death within me. Can you identify? You know, all of us can in different ways. Um, you know, if I were to tell you about one of my own little besetting sins, it would be insecurity. You know, the idea of being insecure is that we're in the moment believing our value is based on the one perceiving us. But that's, that's where insecurity, that's what it means. And yet what God says about us is that we are His beloved children, that He made us and takes care of us, that there's never a moment where He's not watching over us to sustain us. And, the, and I believe that cognitively. But when it comes to the reality of a struggle or a tough situation or that really bad news or that super complicated dynamic that you might experience like I'm going to, you know, if you go to a family celebration or something. In that moment, what does it look like in the midst of that spiritual struggle to begin to say, okay, maybe God, your grace is enough. How do I tap into it? What does it look like for me to begin to live as if you, I am who you say that I am. Well, Paul talks about that with this idea of being delivered. The concept of spiritual triumph. Paul says this at the end of, verse, at the end of chapter uh, 7. So then, or he says in verse 25, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. This idea that there's some way to access the kind of grace that is, enables us to seek after what our hearts so long for. To be people who bring peace into relationships instead of conflict. People who bring um, kindness into a situation where there's cruelty because of what God offers us in His Son, Jesus. It's God's intention. It's what Paul talks about here is that our lives are actually not meant to be defined by the reality of struggle and our failure to resist the struggle. It's actually meant to be defined by the power of this triumph that comes through 
Jesus Christ. To be able to turn toward Him away from other things. Now, sin is often talked about in the sort of a metaphor of darkness. It's an idea of being in a place where it's so dark you can't see. And that can be quite, you know, scary and terrifying. I went to Moab this summer with my Jeep, and I went into a canyon. And if you've ever, they call some of these places the darkest places on earth. But if you go into those places, and you're in a, you know, I was on the side of a mountain, but it was a road, and I was against the the wall of the mountain, so it was pretty safe. I turned off all the lights. It is so dark. You can barely see your hand in front of your face. Or maybe you're a scuba diver and you've gone scuba diving and you've gone night diving. And you turn all the lights off. It is so dark. You are paralyzed in the darkness. You don't know which way's up, which way's down, what's coming towards you, if you're in danger or not. And life can feel this way if you try to go about it on your own strength, by your own power, with your own predictions of what's going to take place. Life can feel like walking in the darkness. We're not made for that. It's why Paul, as you read this, you know, Tim Keller referred to it as, um, you know, this Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde situation. The reason he experiences that, this sort of bouncing around in his, his consciousness and in, in his mind, is because we're not actually meant to exist in a place where we're paralyzed by the darkness. Now, when you think of darkness, what do you think of? Now, when I was a child and I was afraid of the dark, what do your parents come and do? They come and they tuck you in. They check under your bed. They open the closet to make sure no one's there. They turn on the lights to assure you of what? If you'll trust me, in this space and in this place, you're safe. Where is that place that God is calling us to entrust ourselves to? Here it is. Verse 25. This, this thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In your moments of spiritual struggle, God is not asking you to grin and bear it. He's not asking you to go figure it out on your own. You don't need ten new self-help books. You're not, you can't even do the Ten Commandments well. We all struggle too. This is what you need. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the starting point for beginning to shed light into the darkness. You know, if you don't seek Jesus in these moments, you will find a coping mechanism. You know what a coping mechanism is? It's something you use to sort of cope with the reality of difficult situation. For some people, it's stress eating. You know, for others, it's therapy shopping. I had a friend who had a different therapist like every two months because, you know, just the itch wasn't getting scratched. Isolation or avoidance, maybe that's your call. Sometimes that's me. You know, to be isolated, to avoid people, that's my coping mechanism at times with stress. Maybe it's entertainment, seeing a movie, sort of escape for a brief moment or a really good book or gaming for some of you. Where do you go when life is such a struggle that you need to get a breath? Where is that place? What Paul offers here is not just a place where you can get a breath, not just a sip of water, but you can drink from a place where God promises you you because He's the God of truth that when you drink here, you will find refreshing waters. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So when you think about who Jesus is, as the Christ and the Lord, just two kind of ideas here. That Jesus is the Christ means He is the actual deliverer. If you've lived any amount of times, I am certain you have tried many different ways to answer questions in your heart and in your life. You know, maybe it's when you buy a new car, 
and you're thinking to yourself, how long is this thing going to last before it breaks? And then you think, oh, I'll buy a warranty. That's going to take care of it. I'll buy a warranty, and now I don't have to worry about it. You ever, had to try to, you ever tried to collect on those warranties? It's a very difficult process usually. Sometimes they work. But in general, it's, it's almost a false sense of security. Or maybe it's this. You'll think, if I can just get that master's degree, I can get that job that I want and the income that I need, and now I'll be satisfied and I won't be stressed out anymore. Like, what is the thing you go to in your heart when you say, if just this, then I have peace? God is actually inviting you to do this. If it's true that through Jesus Christ our Lord, I can find grace and peace and mercy, if that's true, what you will find is His mercy. And His mercy, His mercy, and His mercy more. God offers you grace. He's the Messiah. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things. In Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. That is the one who comes to you and says, I will be your deliverer. The one through whom and by whom and for whom all things were made. The one who knows your heart even better than you know it and your struggles even better than you know them and your hopes and your dreams even better than you know them. And what he offers is actually joy, grace, access to his light. It's a lie to believe that, you're, that the greatest coping mechanisms are that letter to get into a college or finances or you know, a, a, a place where no one knows the truth about you or a place where you're not ashamed or whatever it is. There's something in us that tells us that that's actually going to be our Messiah. That's going to be our deliverer. It's a lie. God comes to you this morning and says, let 2020 be the year where you make Romans chapter 7, verse 25, your verse that you return to on a daily basis that thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ is your Messiah, but He's also your Lord. And what this means is, is that you're not actually at your best whenever you get to do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whoever you want. That's actually not what you're designed for. You're made to live under the Lordship of Jesus, to follow His ways, to hear His response when asked, the great, you know, what's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. In doing those things, we begin to access following Jesus. And what He says is when we follow Him, the result is grace. The result is thriving. Now, one of the best test labs for this in my own life is my marriage. It's like the best test lab for me to figure out, do I really believe that God's grace is so sufficient for me that I can search out ways to be gracious to my wife? Now, before you get all excited about who I am, go ask her how I'm doing. Okay? I'm in process. I have to repent to my wife and my kids often. I'm sorry I raised my voice. I'm sorry I got impatient. 
I'm sorry I made that assumption. See, it's counterintuitive, but like even in our worship services, every week we confess our sins. That's the spiritual journey we're meant to go through. To see who God is and to praise Him and adore Him. To realize in the midst of His greatness where we fall short. And for Him to say, but you're forgiven. And that's what God does with us here. He says, I'll be your Lord. You're not going to be the perfect follower. And I have grace for you to sustain you and to forgive you. To guide you by the Spirit through whatever it is you're going to encounter in 2020. And I wish I could tell you exactly what you're going to face in 2020. I can't. You may have some really tough stuff coming up. You might not. It may be just a glorious, joyful year for you. But what I can promise you is you will experience spiritual struggle and that the only way you're going to experience spiritual triumph is if you begin to pray in your heart and meditate on the reality that Jesus Christ is your Messiah and your Lord. That is the path toward spiritual triumph that God has for you in His Son. Now let me kind of wrap this up here. When I, um, last week I was with my kids in Winter Park, Colorado. And we try to go at least once a year to go snowboarding or whatever. And we were on a lift and we were going to the top and we got to the top of the mountain and it was just gorgeous. I mean, if you've ever been up there and you stand and you, over, you look out over these twelve to 14,000 foot peaks that are crested just with snow and it's, it's, it's amazing to be up there. And I thought to myself, and I was joking with one of my kids, because Walker said to me, I think I'm going to jump off. Do you think I'll get hurt? And I said, you probably would get hurt, but you'd definitely be in trouble, and then you'd have to walk to the top. And that's the real, like, punishment for jumping off the lift too early, is you have to walk up another 800 feet, quarter mile, whatever it is, in the snow, with your boots, up this hill. I mean, it might almost be impossible. It would be so exhausting. But once you get up there, it's worth the wait. It's absolutely gorgeous and beautiful. Our tendency in this life is to not want to trust in God's ways, to believe His grace is enough, to sit and wait for Him to take us to where He's taking us. That, our tendency pushes against that. That's called sin. But if we will trust in Him, if we will lean on Him, if we will tell ourselves in the midst of spiritual struggle, spiritual triumph is possible. Jesus is my Christ Jesus is my Lord. I'm going to trust in His ways and believe that His ways are going to lead me to the top. Then what you discover, not just incredible views, but access to God's mercies that are sufficient for you both now and for the rest of your lives. And that's really my hope for myself in 2020. It's my hope for you. Is that we spiritually struggle with the reality of asking ourselves the question, what am I really trusting in? Now, what are the things that I'm really worshiping or looking to give me what only God can give me? And to even pray together, to meditate on His promises so that He might more and more enable us to say, okay, I'm going to do it, Lord. I'm going to trust You that, that what You offer me is sufficient. As difficult as it may be, as much as I'll struggle, as often as I'll fail, would You give me the grace sufficient to be able to say with Paul, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, that that is actually the path toward life and hope and flourishing. It is not something we can do on our own. It's why God gives us His Spirit. It's why He gives us His Word. It's why He gives us the ability to sing together and to worship together because as we do this, we are accessing a grace that yields that spiritual triumph for us. So as we come to the table, that's my invitation for you. 
to come to the table to celebrate together what God has done for us and to say, Lord, give me faith to believe the spiritual triumph is possible. Give me faith to trust in the Lord Jesus who is my Savior that I might walk with you in your ways this year. Let's pray together. Lord, we do put our trust in You. Everybody in this room knows what it's like to have spiritual struggle. Everybody knows what it's like um, to fear, to maybe even experience darkness. But what You tell us is that as we echo Paul's prayer here in the book of Romans, that our hearts might get distracted, that we might be led towards things that are not good for us. Father, we might forget altogether, and maybe that's it, that You are who You are, and yet You are our Messiah. You are our Deliverer. And during this season of Christmas, Lord, would You give us the faith to put our trust in that ultimate hope. In Your name we pray. Amen.